like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is Jason Isaacs, a remarkable actor, philanthropist, and someone who makes me laugh every day at work. I'm going to guess that you already know Jason. If you don't know him as Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series, you might know him as Captain Hook in Peter Pan, or Colonel William Tavington in The Patriot, or Hap in the OA. When we first met, trust that I fangirled him about that show. Perhaps you've seen him in his latest tour de force film, Mass, or maybe you know him the way I know him best, as my TV dad, Dr. Rob Griffith on Good Sam. Jason's come an awfully long way since his first appearance in Mel Smith's The Tall Guy in 1989. Originally from Liverpool, Jason and his family moved to London when he was a child, where he experienced his own injustice that shaped his outlook and no doubt influenced the legacy he wants to leave on the world around him. You might have heard, but Jason's been an incredible supporter of the British Red Cross with his ultimate Harry Potter quiz that raised $78,000 just last year for the Red Cross. He's visited refugee projects to learn how the Red Cross is helping over half a million refugees rebuild their lives. And he works constantly to destigmatize their experience by lending his platform to their voices. Whatever he's doing throughout his career of well over a hundred films, he has been an advocate for those who feel inferior, for those who've been marginalized, and for those whose voices are not being heard. For someone who often plays a villain, Jason Isaacs is an incredibly caring and deeply empathetic human being who I am so glad to call my real-life friend and my make-believe dad. We're going to find out more about his life, his career, and his incredible work right here, right now. And we had such a good conversation that we've actually decided to break this up into two episodes. Enjoy.
And it's weird, you and I talking on microphones. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it is weird, isn't it? It is weird. I don't think I can look at you. It's funny to be, first of all, it's funny that we're sitting in my living room where we've sat before, but with microphones. And it's weird. I, I, I know I was saying this to you before I turned the recorder on, but other than you and Sky, I, I haven't interviewed anyone in person since 2019. I know, but you know something that's... Uh, my favorite bit of when we lived in California, so I lived in Topanga, this outside LA, you know where it is, but yeah. but it was about a 45-minute drive to take the kids to school. Mm. And we had these amazing conversations because we weren't looking at each other. Yeah. And when you look at someone, if I sit down with my teenage kids now, well, they wouldn't sit down, but it, it would be a three-second <laughs> conversation. But in a car, you yep. can do it. And somehow, maybe remotely, you can have conversations because you're not looking at someone. Yep. I might have to turn my chair away from you, like in a therapist. Do you want me just to look at my prep no, document gonna, the whole time? No, I'm just going to turn my chair away because it's weird. <laughs> it's already a weird dynamic that in all interviews are weird, aren't they? Because uh, I always want to apologize to journalists afterwards and go, if I meet you socially, I'll just listen to you all night. Yeah. Because it's one-sided, you know, notionally you're meant to do all the talking and, it, and you try and make it social and normal. Yeah. But that's not normal, it's just rude. Well, you can yeah. ask me things if you want to. I, I will. Nothing's really, <laughs> nothing's really off. That's the thing. So uh, you're so good at the social stuff. I watch you navigate your way around all the social media. And I have many friends who do it. But some stuff is off. So well, of everybody has this version of I'm going to share what I think and feel. Mm. I'm going to share even if I have mental health issues or mm. Will Smith and his family sit down and pour out their marital issues and stuff. Mm. What's private? What do we, you know, so what version of the, do we share with the public and what yeah. do we keep? You know? I know it's really... It's tricky to figure those things out, especially because if you have nothing that is sacred, you have nothing that is yours. Yeah. But then I know, for example, you brought them up, you know, I know how revolutionary watching Jada's show, Red Table Talk, has felt to me. Sure. And the way that they've been able to usher certain conversations into households, I think is so incredible. And, and recently... When he was on his book tour, something clicked for me, and I, I wonder if it might resonate with you. I I looked at him and I went, oh, they're in their teaching stage. Right. They had a privacy stage, and now they're, they're in a teaching stage. And I, I know that as an individual, I've gone through so many stages, and I know there's more stages of my life to come. And I wonder if maybe some stages you want to be deeply private and some of them you want to shout from the rooftops. I don't know. I, I think you're, it's unquestionably true that you're right that uh, them exposing themselves, peeling all the layers back, is incredibly helpful to people mm. watching. Mm -hmm. There's no, no, And you and I both know Esther Perel, who mm -hmm. uh, I think is magnificent, and her podcast where couples come and yes. have kind of all-day therapy uh, is incredibly helpful and useful to people listening. I'm just saying that you and I are performers, so mm -hmm. I, I think it's valuable what the Smiths are doing. It's incredible mm -hmm. what they're doing. Uh, I just don't want to be that person myself. Totally. But I, I'm, look, I'm much older than you. I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm playing your dad because I'm actually old enough to be your dad, which is <laughs> odd because we're contemporaries. But um, I still feel, and it's ludicrous to hang on to things that just aren't going to reverse, but I still uh, remember how much I worshipped those actors that seemed so enigmatic to me that mm -hmm. I only saw on screen and whose private lives I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. Their sexuality I knew nothing about. Their, mm -hmm. What income brackets they came from, you know, oh, whether they're Robert De Niro's father being a well-off painter and stuff, you know, just anything about the character. I wanted to suspend my disbelief, mm -hmm. watch them on screen and think they could be anybody they pretend to be. Mm -hmm. 
And and as an actor, I still kind of fantasize that that ought to be the case. I don't want yeah. people even to hear me talking in this accent. Since I play Americans so often, yeah. I don't want them to be watching, oh, he's putting on an American accent. Um, but I think it's just, it's ludicrous. That just isn't the way the world works. Yeah, it's all true and none of it's true and it's all happening simultaneously and it's so confusing. And I do, I try and share if I, I don't know, I don't really know what to do with social media. I don't know who to be on it. Um, I do think people are given comfort and strength when you pull the curtain back on mm -hmm. us and you show them that you are also scared or unsure or, or yeah. uh, a, a bunch of other stuff. Um, it feels like that's a mission, that's a vocation. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, before the pandemic, I used to go around to uh, conventions around the world because I've been in so many different fantasy films. And uh, it would be very easy to sit there and sign autographs or whatever and, and make people feel like they'd met one of their... I don't know, superheroes, whatever. People they they placed sure. on a pedestal. And I always have felt it's my mission in that one minute to make them realize that I'm just an idiot who forgets to take the bins out, puts on makeup and funny voices and don't deserve any more space in the world than they do. Mm. Uh, because that can happen. So I do think social media is useful for that. Mm -hmm. But not when you want people to watch us and believe that we are father and daughter surgeons, for instance. Yeah. They know too much about us. Yeah, I think there has to be a bit of a balance, you know, I'm not a person who puts a ton of my private life out in the world. For a long time, I didn't put any of it out in the world, mm. which, you know, as you know, led to such, it always leads to the rumor mill where you go, am I dating that person? That would be cool. <laughs> um, wow. I didn't know that. I like the net uh, worth. So I go, oh my God. Oh, I know. I have all these, this money that no one's ever told me yeah, about. Where is where, it? I know the internet says I have it. Where is it? Um, I think what's been powerful for me about this space is... The ability to connect unexpectedly and, you know, as you mm -hmm. said, what you can create when you're a person with a platform. And I think that's even an interesting term because, listen, if someone listening has, you know, an account with five followers who are their friends, they have a bigger platform with those five people than I ever will. Sure. Um, but I think when you, when you sort of are willing to spend the privilege of a platform with some honesty, maybe even some radical honesty. What's been very cool for me, you know, talking about anxiety or navigating mental health or trying to figure out my place in the world as a woman and a creative. And I meet people, you know, at, at the conventions we do and they say, you know, I read this thing that you wrote, this post that you shared. And I realized if you struggle with that, I'm not weird because I struggle with it. Sure. If it happens to you, like, why wouldn't it happen to me? Sure. Look, I'm not in any way questioning the value of that's what we do in art, mm -hmm. telling mm -hmm. fictional stories as well as the factual stories about ourselves. I'm just saying that I, I feel odd about doing it. I'm really glad other people yeah. do it. And I, and I do do it sometimes. It's one of the reasons, though, I have no idea who to be on Twitter or Instagram or any of those things, because on the one hand, I was railing against Donald Trump for a long time and, and trying to persuade people to see the truth of what was going on uh, and other political things. I worked for some of the charities and have trying to make people see refugees as other human beings and not parasites or whatever, just to dispel the myths. And, and then I meant to promote things that I'm in. And then I want to make really fucking stupid jokes. <laughs> you know, I want I to know. post ridiculous gifts as well. And I think, you know, if there's hundreds of thousands of people waiting for some sense that they're not alone politically. They don't want to look, read my puns. And if there's people who want Harry Potter gossip, they don't want to be uh, told that 
most of Afghanistan is starving right now and could do with our help, you know. So I, I'm not quite sure which of my multiple personalities to be. I'm not either. But what I lean on all the time is I'm a complete person. And if I withdraw a part of myself, not necessarily on social, because again, there's things I don't share there. But if I withdraw a part of myself, I'm just turning my back on part of myself. I'm making myself smaller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about this. I live in a very mean head. I don't need any more encouragement to be small yeah, yeah. than the encouragement from my own brain. But I'm fascinated just by the the duality and the opposition and the juxtaposition even in what it means to be an artist and to try to make art, to be unknown so that you can be anyone, but also to be known enough that you get to play people who aren't you. you There is a paradox in that. It's also I would do back-to-back independent movies uh, in disguise if I possibly could because Mm. I come from that tradition where uh, which is nonsense, by the way, but it's a tradition where you think, well, I, I, every time I act, I should be unrecognizable from part to part. Um, where does that come from? That's the kind of European, you know, camouflage, chameleon notion of Olivier putting fake noses on and mm. finding different vo- voices and walks. Uh, it's nonsense. It's not true. Your job is to bring the story to life. It doesn't matter if, you're, if the characters could have grown up in the same block as some other character you played one time. Right. But I, I, uh, I felt the struggle right from the beginning of I don't want to be a show off. Mm. I don't want people to look at me. I don't want to do a job yeah. or a hobby, which is about, you know, uh, the, the kids standing on the table doing the tap dance. So I always felt like I wanted the stories when I started, the stories to be so powerful that they grabbed people and they made them phone a helpline or change their life or mm. uh, treat people differently or question their lives. And that, of course, isn't how a career works out. Plus that very thing you just said, you don't get the opportunities to tell interesting, good stories that you think you know, put something great in the world, unless you have a profile, which means unless you've got yourself a little bit famous or yeah. financeable, which involves doing a bit of standing on the table and tap dancing, mm-hmm. which is, so there's a kind of playoff between the two. Yeah, the, the simultaneous truths, when each truth is the opposite of the other, is a bit confusing. But it's interesting that you say that you didn't want to be looked at, because that's how I feel now. Mm. I really want the stories we tell to have eyeballs on them because I think that they make people think and I think they're the types of stories that can make you smarter, kinder, perhaps more tolerant, perhaps more willing to listen to another person. And yet, when I am not at work, my nightmare is to have my picture taken. <laughs> my, my, yeah, yeah. Like my, there's nothing more jarring than being sort of stopped in the middle of doing something, I'm like, me, what? I, I want to like crawl back into my little hobbit yeah, yeah. hole. I don't understand it. And and people find that so funny because they'll say to me, but you're on camera for a living. I'm well, going, yeah, but as someone else. <laughs> what about the fact that, that people think that public speaking, which is most people's worst fear, they'd rather die than yeah. speak in public. They think that actors should be able to do it. Whereas in fact, we're telling stories that other people have written and we're interpretive artists. They've mm-hmm. created the world. Uh, and other people aren't expected to be great, but I'm expected to be great. If I, I find it cripplingly, uh, I find myself cripplingly self-conscious if I'm just meant to talk to a table of 12 people at my own birthday party. Right. Because I, I feel like it ought to be a great speech. This is Should why I'm, you wanted me to do your EPK with you the other day, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I pr- press I find easy. That's, you know, the only thing that's hard for me, I've been doing it so many decades longer than you. If someone asks me a question to which there is a decent answer, it's just normally a story that I've told. 
a thousand times. And if for whatever the you know contingent of fans are still sticking around a bit, they're like, oh, not that again. Not that. And he told it exactly the same You're way. So I'm not even sure if they're true anymore. They're just things <laughs> I've dusted off because they are the answers to those questions, you know. The places you come from. That's that's actually the place I normally like to start with people because you're right. There are people who've been present in your career. There are people who've found you through a variety of avenues of performances and who follow what you're doing and who are very excited about it. We we all at work comment on this sort of um, magnificent intensity of the excitement of the Harry Potter fandom meeting right. the One Tree Hill fandom <laughs> in our in our show. And obviously it's just one thing, but I am curious about where it started. It's not lost on me that so many people know you as mm. a character from a film, from a TV show, from a series of films. Maybe it's a blockbuster, maybe it's an independent, maybe it's a fantasy. But I always like to know who people were before. And I really, I must say, perhaps with you more than anyone, I'm very curious to hear your answer when I ask oh, you. pressure, terrible pressure. No, I, I just, because you know what it is? We've done so much backstory about my character's childhood with mm -hmm. you. And granted, that's make-believe, but we've talked a lot about each other's families. Mm -hmm. But... You've talked to me a lot about your experiences as a father. I've talked to you a lot about my experiences as a daughter. But I don't know who you were when you were a little boy. I, I don't know a, who you were. There's a beautiful film called Petite Maman that we watched, which is oh, so gorgeous movie. about a little girl getting to know her mum as a little girl. If mm -hmm. anyone's listening, you should watch it. I don't know. You know, some, who was little question, Jason? I don't really know. I, I'm, I grew up in Liverpool. And those people who have a really canny ear might be able to hear the odd vowel sound buried under there. But I, uh, I think... Oh, let me come at this a slightly different angle. So I've played lots of real life people in my life, quite mm. a few soldiers, you know, in Black Hawk Down and, and uh, other things, and but also um, whatever politicians and just uh, footballers, various people. And sometimes I've got to meet them, sometimes I haven't, sometimes mm. I speak to them. And I've found it to be the case that you get a much clearer, more honest, emotional picture of the I don't know infrastructure or forces, subterranean forces in people by talking to everyone else. I don't know that anyone really knows themselves very well. Mm -hmm. I don't know that people can describe themselves well. I, I'm reasonably, I don't know about articulate, verbose. So I, you know, I can talk about myself. Whether it's real, whether it's an accurate self-analysis or not, I don't know. It may be a story I've told about myself to myself. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to like, how did you, why are you an actor? How did you get into acting? I have this narrative of um, a little boy who never quite felt comfortable. Uh, although other people who knew me say I seemed incredibly confident. So I don't know that that's true. But I was very self-conscious uh, and always managed to fake being whatever I thought other people needed me to be. Mm. So I was in lots of different crowds. And that, that's something I think, it's called code switching nowadays, but that didn't exist. But I, I, was, uh, I was from Liverpool and I was Jewish. I mean, moved to London and I was in a world that was neither of those things. Um, I was in this kind of still Jewish suburban ghetto socially, but I went to school that wasn't. And then I started skateboarding and skateboarding professionally when I was 14, 15. And I would go to the South Bank where I was one of the only white kids and uh, everybody was very rough and from very different worlds than I was from. And then eventually I went to university. All of these places 
I had completely different subcultures and I would be whoever I thought the people I was mixing with needed me to be vocally. It's a particularly British thing, but you know, I changed my voice enormously, the accent probably changed my character. Uh, I was probably acting all those years. So mm. I went to university and, uh, you know, I'm not starting on little, I, I, I remember this to be true. I went to university. They all sounded like Hugh Grant to me or Posh and Hugh Grant, you know, the Royal family. And, and they certainly seemed to me, they all had the same clothes. They'd been to the same schools. And I wanted to fit in with the people that I was mixing with. And I tried to sound like them. I don't know if I pulled it off or not. I went out and bought secondhand clothes to try and look a bit like them. I'm sure I didn't pull any of those things off. And a couple of weeks in, drunk because I used to, we all drank a lot but I used to drink and take a lot of drugs uh, to uh, many ways I think it's an equalizer like if everybody's wasted then there's nothing that separates you mm. anyway I saw a sign for an audition in the union building of the university and it said can you do a northern accent and the one thing that I've been hiding that I definitely could do was a Liverpool accent and I went to an audition for this play and I somebody cast me in a play and I went to rehearsals whatever it was the next day and for the first time in maybe my life I felt completely relaxed about, I, I didn't worry about who I was outside the room mm. when I was pretending to be someone else or when I was exploring how human beings behave, what makes them laugh, cry, shout, hate, you know, it was a new play. And, uh, I had the same thing you've seen rear its ugly head on set. Sometimes at absolute certainty, there was only one truth in a scene and that everybody had to see it my way and everybody had to perform my way. I just, I suddenly found this volcanic passion for telling stories and exploring what human beings were like. So who I was when I was young, I don't know. I, I, there are people who think that they knew a version of me and don't recognize my own descriptions. I think I was always inside my head. My inner dialogue was, how are you so comfortable? How do other people just seem to be easily themselves? Me too. Uh, and, and I, probably pulled off looking like that. One of the strangest things that ever happens to me in my life is when people tell me that I seem incredibly confident, powerful, right. like I do it all. Because my experience is I'm terrified all the time. I wonder how everyone else is being so normal, how they manage to have conversations and what are they texting about? What do mm. people text about? And I feel like I don't do anything every well, day. I'm like, on. I haven't done anything. No, I'm, I'm enormously... I want to say not intimidated by you because uh, I'm so old, I feel like it's okay that you're different. But I watch you just firing on so many cylinders. The fact that you're doing it while you're insecure or wondering if you're doing it all great is a tribute to the fact that, you know, courage is not not being scared. It's being scared and doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're doing this podcast. I know you do another podcast with your castmates. You work with us and you're better prepared than anybody else on the set, uh, which is, we may get to how my you know, deliberate anarchy of being unprepared. Um, you have businesses. So you, you, you do achieve an enormous number of things fantastically well. The fact that you don't think that you're great while you're doing them is what makes you nice. Because if you did think you were great and that you were doing them all brilliantly, it would be obnoxious. Maybe. I would just like to be a little less stressed. Oh. But yeah, it's it's. Do you think you'd be less stressed if you did less? I'm not sure you would. It's not the, the, the doing less. It's that I wish I wasn't the... I don't know how to describe it other than to say, you know, the moment before you fall, when mm -hmm. you trip and you go, oh God, I feel like that all day. Like, oh, the floor is coming right. all day. And it would be really nice to, you know, hear you make the list and go, yeah, I do that all day. And I'm like, this is hilarious. I don't feel I like I don't know anybody who does as many things as you do without feeling what you do. 
everyone I know who is driven to achieve in many different areas like you are, it's because of those feelings. Mm. That's, what, that's what makes people do that much. People who grow up and have a very easy, happy life, a wonderful relationship with their parents and siblings, A, don't become performers, don't achieve that much. They open a cake shop and they go home and they have dinner and they go to bed at seven o'clock and you know, they live contented mm. lives and they don't feel the need to achieve. They don't feel the need. Mm. To the, the drive in order to make their mark so you don't get one without the other yeah so we just have to be slightly manic <laughs> yeah i mean i think i my coping mechanism for feeling like i wanted something to be different i've wanted to get out in the world and make reshape the world so it wasn't the one i was living in mm. was to take a lot of drugs for 20 years i was you know i took a lot of drugs for 20 years and and it really helped for a long time it was fantastic until it was awful and you know uh, and ruined my life and so um yours has been i'm go i'm going to do things and i'm going to do them well and i'm going to keep doing them and i'm going to keep opening pushing open new doors mm. um it's fantastic to watch i love watching you do it sorry Thank i know it's you. sickening for anyone listening no, but it is true i love that you know it, it just struck me as you said that that i think you and i both are relentless and each of us has had to figure out where our willingness or our inability not to be relentless is useful versus harmful. Yes, that's true. You, you put yours into much more constructive things. I, I find myself obsessed with, because I've only done the one thing, I, you know, acting, a little bit of producing, some writing and stuff, and maybe some directing coming up. But I, but I mostly, I because I've done this single thing, I find myself obsessed of with moments even long after I've filmed them or oh, you know, been on stage. It's just uncovering. It's like, um, I don't know, it's like a sketch or something. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, or a piece of sculpture. I just, it's never quite right. And, I, and it stays in my head. I These totally moments stay in my head and the writing stays in my head. I think, you know, I can't, I sometimes, as you know, I get obsessed with, I want to turn a phrase round. Mm -hmm. And there's, we have a magnificent writer on our show and she's, God, I've never worked for anybody who is as open and collaborative. But I still get like a six-year-old in my head, like, you know, tears well up in my eyes. And I go, I want to say this instead of this. She lets us anyway because she's great if it doesn't ruin things. But I, um, I, have, a, I have an obsessive uh, drive. You're right, and I've channeled it into a single thing. You've channeled it into 20 things, which is probably much healthier. I don't know that it is because it's probably why I feel like I'm, I have this sort of sense that I'm capable of a lot of things, but not really phenomenal at anything. That's how I feel. That might not be what you'd say to me. Yeah, but who, who are these but, people you know, who think they're great? I don't who know. Who are these people who think they're phenomenal? <laughs> I fucking hate them. Not you and me. No, but also they're awful. But it was No some... one in the arts or in any other field should sure. be walking around saying, I mean, it's a very English thing to think this, very Australian as well, oddly, the whole tall poppy thing. No one should go, I'm wonderful, I'm great, look at this thing I've done, isn't it, isn't I, it magnificent? I don't think it's about the the version of that that's rooted in conceit though i think i think it's about um for me because conceited people i just want to kick in the shin just like a swift kick with like a pointy mm -hmm. mule you know um but i see people who are beautifully confident and i and i think to myself what must that feel like yeah you know and and and, and i people do sleep realize, easy at night without worrying sure. at all that they that they may or may not have done things well during well, the yeah. day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you talk about old jobs. I I made this movie the summer that I turned twenty three, 
And like the last week we were on the movie, things really devolved with the director, who was his first feature, the producers, they were like screaming at each other all the time. I was so scared and nervous that it really took me out of my head in terms of being able to focus in the mm. last week we were shooting the end of the movie. I'm haunted by choices I wish I'd made. <laughs> and people are like, I loved that movie. And I'm like, well, just cut me out of it. And they're like, we can't. You were the lead of the fucking movie. But it makes me crazy. And it doesn't mean it's real. You no, know? And it doesn't mean but it matters. But it does mean, uh, you know, that's that's the life of an artist. Yeah. You know, so it's a bit I'm, pretentious thing. But it is true nonetheless. Well, I love that you're self-deprecating and you call it pretentious. But I do, I do think it is very universal. I think a lot yeah. of people experience that. And, and I'm curious about the ways we channel things. Because I know what it's been to not channel my sort of relentlessness into healthy zones, like to, <laughs> you know, be in fixer-upper relationships where mm -hmm. I'm determined that I'm the one who sees it differently and nonsense that's, you know, terribly common for too many wonderful women. But when you talk about your history and and I so admire the way that you talk about sobriety and the way that you show up for people. I am curious if you don't mind telling me about it. How do you go from, as you said, this, you know, close-knit Jewish community, you've, you've described yourself as a person who is profoundly Jewish, but not in a religious way. You're, you're spiritual. You, I think that was probably in an interview with a Jewish newspaper. <laughs> I, I mean, I, maybe. I'm really not. Uh, I think I grew up doing all of it. You can't mm. separate the religious from the cultural. Uh, so I grew up st heavily steeped in everything. Mm. And then I walked completely away from it. And, uh, you know, what I missed the that? songs. I know all the songs. Why was it? Because I went to, I grew up, my parents grew up in the 40s, you know, and, they, and then uh, they were teenagers when the war ended and the Holocaust was revealed to them. And mm. they experienced much worse anti-Semitism, I'm sure, than I ever have. And, uh, and so they had a siege mentality. That this notion that everyone was out to get the Jews and at any point someone would turn on you. You can never really trust anyone. At some point we'd be kicked out of England or whatever and, and you're yeah. temporary visitors. Um, and I inherited quite a lot of that until yeah. I started having friends and lovers and partners and, and children who were not, that's just not my life, that was theirs. And mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm very Jewish in the sense that the world will never let me forget that that's who my background was and that there are many people in the world still who would kill me or string me up or burn me for because of my uh, heritage? So I'm uh, so somehow to turn my back on it and say, uh, well, that's just not me. It's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Knowing full well that it defines me in so many other people's eyes seems mm -hmm. like an abdication of responsibility, maybe. And the other thing is really very trivial. I remember all the songs. I can read. I can read the language. Like you know, yeah. I'm so steeped in. It. I spent so many years, and I love just like people love Christmas trees or people love Easter bunnies or whatever. You know, I love all the food stuff. And I loved all the rituals, but I have non-Jewish wife, I have non-Jewish children, and uh, we don't do any of those things. And so I guess it will fade with me. Uh, and so uh, um, when I said I'm profoundly Jewish, what I meant was I'm never allowed to forget and I don't forget because it feels like uh, walking away from a fight that I'm a part of. Mm. I don't believe in God, for instance. Uh, I, I even get... Offend is the wrong word, but I stupidly do that thing uh, of always wanting to bring up faith 
abortion, taxes, whatever is most difficult in any conversation, that's what I want to talk about. And God is always at the heart of things. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, because I come from a very blended family. We're a bunch of Catholics and Jews and agnostics and, you know, a couple of atheists mixed in there. And so it, it led me down this path growing up with both, you know, practices of religious traditions. As a kid, I was like, but I don't understand they basically say the same thing. Right. Like my analogy when I was young was, okay, your sweaters are different colors, but you're both wearing sweaters. Why are we arguing about sweat? Right. Like this is so stupid. And it it led me to study Eastern philosophy. And I spent my whole senior year in high school studying Islam. I really wanted to understand what is the root of belief for people? And why don't we see that most of our belief is much more similar than different? Well, that's, that's something that fascinates me so much. I might actually be making a television series about mm. beliefs uh, coming up soon because I know it's not really possible, but because of what we do for a living and because, you know, who knows what stories we, we tell next, I kind of think of myself as a pretty blank vessel. I, I studied law originally, partly, I think, because I can see all sides of everything. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. people sometimes ask me, what, why do you play all these antagonists or villains? And I go, well, I, I try not to take the part unless I recognize a human being in it. You know, uh, Lucius Malfoy being maybe the most high profile, he's a racist. He's an Aryan. I mean, it's not very, it's thinly disguised. He's a guy that thinks uh, the world was better when people like he ruled it and that mixed blood is an offense against some kind of, you know, eugenic purity and stuff. And, you, you know, it's not far fetched or magical. Um, there, those people, there are people elected to seats all over Europe and to the White House for a while who believes in those things. Um, anyway, so the, the more general point is that I, I feel like. I'm blank, or I can be blank. Mm -hmm. I can see how anybody could believe anything, given their mm -hmm. context, given what they're listening to, who they're listening to, mm -hmm. what era they grew up in, what the mores of the society they live in is. And that's uh, partly if we tell the truth, if we play characters truthfully um, without judging them, then people will recognize that. People will go, you know, it, it, people, if not recognize themselves in the character, recognize that as a truth about humankind, right. which is which leads to them understanding each other a bit more, mm -hmm. possibly. I don't know if that's a, a, it's a lofty goal, but I think if we just hold the mirror up to nature, you know, uh, you get something as a viewer. Even in, you know, we're making essentially lighthearted entertainment at the moment, you know. The, uh, our medical show has high stakes, it has tears, it has laughter. Um, but if we can do things truthfully, if we can find moments of truth, mm -hmm. it makes people feel, I think, I hope, it makes people feel slightly less uh, alone and that their own kind of inner dialogue uh, is not unique. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I was like, I've gone on to that from God because I can see why people believe in it and want to believe in it. I, when I grew up, I was told very early on, mm. I saw those images. I was taken to Yavah Shem in Jerusalem. I saw, you know, I was seeing mountains of corpses. They meant nothing to me. They didn't look like people. They certainly weren't me. They weren't related to me. Um, but I was told all about the Holocaust and everybody at some point was going to kick the Jews out or kill them. At the same time, we were telling stories at Passover of this giant bearded creature in the sky that reached down and smote Egyptians with all these plagues. And, and, and it's true of Islam and it's true of Christianity and Judaism that there is this God that if you appeal at the right time, in the right words, maybe every Sunday, every Saturday, will lean down and help you. And I was growing up thinking, well, where the fuck was he? Yeah. And as I began to read newspapers, I go, where is he now? Where is he when a 
continent is blighted uh, with, you know, childhood cancer or AIDS or the Armenian genocide or anything. Like, mm -hmm. where is this interventionist God? And people go, well, it's all about free will. And you go, but that's not the stories you're telling, free will. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's such an inherent contradiction in all those monotheistic religions. I just, I don't understand it. But I, uh, but my, somehow my mission um, as a storyteller is to be able to understand how anybody can believe anything and become anyone. The best way I've ever made sense of it comes back to story. Because for me, my personal belief, having grown up with so many books mm. about so many faiths in my space and seeking out more, is simply that the you know, bearded guy in the sky. I mean, the irony that we would think that a God, that God could be gendered, but anyway, mm -hmm. or sit in a chair, like, what are we doing? But the best way I know to make sense of it for me is all of these stories are metaphors about the way humans can treat each other. Mm -hmm. We can be vile, we can be cruel, we can be homicidal, genocidal, violent, but at our best... We serve, we save, we show up, sure. we give. And who do we want to be? Do we want to be more faithful or more vicious? Pick. And the idea is that every day you can pick to be better. Yeah. And aside from that idea, I don't really have time for people arguing about it. That's the only sweater I want to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, no, I completely with you. That's that. Uh, there's so much of what things have crystallized for for me in the last few years is, um, despite what it might look like if you read my Twitter rants when Trump was in power, is what can I affect and how can I affect? I can affect other people around me by being gracious and by trying to act out of uh, generosity and love and not trying to make other people feel worse to make myself feel better. And, uh, and where can I make a difference and where can I not? If I can't make a difference... Don't let it occupy real estate in my head because mm -hmm. it's just rotting stuff in there. But that's, I think, why you have to rant sometimes. And that actually being rooted in that kind of love and showing up for people is why I can speak for myself here, why I fought so hard against Trump. Because mm. to watch a man in modern times literally copy Hitler's playbook sure. and then have people say that's not what he's doing. Oh, no, no. The I rage... don't think he was smart enough deliberately to plagiarize. I think it's an instinct, an ugly instinct in all of those uh, plutocrats that, that they they recognize in all human nature is this is an instinct you can play into which is to tell people if their life isn't perfect then it's not their fault it's and then fill in the blank and it could be mexicans jews women gay people immigrants well it doesn't matter what it is if your life isn't perfect and and i think there is a tribal instinct and has been throughout time that we have to continually monitor. You know, the, the catchphrase, whatever it is, not catchphrase, wrong word, but the tagline for Holocaust Memorial Day is always never forget. Yes. And it bothers me. Um, not that it's the wrong uh, tagline, but it's, it makes people think they're being told never to forget these piles of corpses and the crematoria and stuff. It's not that. I don't think that's useful. And, and, and sometimes I, I hear that complaint, the Jews want special treatment. So, you know, the Holocaust comes up, there's too many films about it, too many documentaries about it. Actually, the only reason to revisit it is not to remember the dead, although they should be honored, all dead should be. It's to never forget how it starts. And to never do it again. Well, yeah, but the, if you tell people, yeah. don't become murderous, genocidal monsters, well, it's course. easy. If you go, 
but just remember how it started. It starts with othering. It starts with going, those yes. people aren't quite like you. Yes. Believing any tropes, believing any cliches about any particular group of people. Mm -hmm. In my uh, life at the moment, uh, I sometimes have things to do with the Red Cross. It's a great privilege to be around asylum seekers and refugees. Britain has a minute, minute percentage of the number of people who are displaced in the world. Mm -hmm. But the ridiculous lies that are spread about them the notion that people have even my liberal progressive friends thinking they know who these people are and what they've been through and what they want out of the country they've arrived at and it's it starts by going you know well if people aren't looking for a job then we need to cut them off uh, from welfare we're not rich enough actually we're perfectly rich enough to have a safety net that catches everybody yes we have you know. more than enough money in fact a and uh that your country and mine yeah and that refugees have come, there are economic opportunities that have come here just to send money back. And I've met numbers of people who have been kept as sex slaves in Yemen, who've watched mm -hmm. their family drown, who've, you know, uh, risked their life to get on a floating piece of cardboard to come across the channel because they had an uncle who speaks English who's in England. And that's yeah. the only place that might seem safe because their families are dead. And it's extraordinary, the myths that are perpetuated. So for me, never forget is never forget how it starts. It starts with jokes, it starts with like othering, that. it starts with thinking they're not quite like me they, you know there's a country that the, we haven't given vaccines to india or to various other countries they don't regard death in the same way i've heard that they don't regard i actually heard it from a very prominent indian person when i was shooting there i said god it's so shocking being here i've never seen you know i've read about and i prepared myself but actually to witness poverty and starvation on, on this level of places that i've been he said yeah but you have to understand jason people view death differently here and i was thinking no I don't believe you. I don't believe that those people I passed today who I'm sure are starving and dying view death differently from the way you do. Um, so it's that. That never forget for me is never. we must police ourselves continually mm -hmm. for how it starts, not how it ends. Yeah. I think that's what was hardest about, you know, the last five years for me is to watch the swift uptick in the glee at dehumanizing yeah. other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I worry about what happens to us when we don't view each other as neighbors. You know, I, I am a staunch defender of justice and I'm pretty willing to sit down with almost anyone and hear their perspective because what I've found in traveling all over the country and all over the world and moving to towns and cities and places is that even people who don't think they'll have anything in common with me, if we share a meal, by the end of it, we're friends. Sure. And a lot of the hatred and blame, it comes from ignorance, lack of contact, lack mm -hmm. of exposure. You know, oh, I, yeah. well, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I was, and I backed off from it completely, when I was hysterically, rabidly political when Trump was in and using blame, as weaponizing blame or hatred all the time, mm -hmm. uh, I would look at some of the outpouring of... Uh, violent you know murderous hatred towards me for saying that. and i'd click on those people's timelines mm -hmm. and i'd read where who they were talking to who they were listening to and i'd think you know if i only had these sources of information yeah. i would think the same as you did yeah you know uh, and you know it, and you have to question you go well are my sources as valid who am i thinking that the media that is so uh, traduced by trump and everyone else the lamestream media maybe they're all lying to me but actually 
they have journalistic standards. Yes. I mean, America, more standards. so than Britain, certainly printed press, you have to have three independent sources of corroboration. Exactly. I mean, there are objective standards that just aren't adhered to elsewhere. My, my friend Stephanie teaches community college in Oklahoma, and one of the things she teaches is trying to get her students to find what verifiable, reliable sources are mm-hmm. before they form opinions and when they're writing. Uh, and it's very difficult. They can't even agree often on what a verifiable source is. Yeah. Well, and I think it can be very hard to even imagine that there are entire troll farms, yeah. you know, funded by dark money that literally spend all day making disinformation look like real news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we don't do that. You and I don't do that all day. Most people can't imagine that that's real. So when something looks real, they think it is real. We're, we're in a new kind of battle that I think a lot of people... But you never win a battle with someone who thinks something by telling them they're wrong and they're like, the only way, and it, it's impossible. I was talking about it before that you switched the mic on. Could someone, I was talking to a Hollywood mogul the other day going, listen, you have, all these, you have all these people that you can influence. You tell these stories on a gigantic scale. Can you use your smarts and contacts to establish a neutral source of fact so that everybody, whatever side of any political spectrum mm-hmm. they sit on, go, well, that's a fact. Let's start drawing. And he went, no, of course I can't. That's impossible. But that's that's the biggest task facing us. Whether it's on climate change or immigration or anything in the world, yeah. what's a fact? Yeah, it's crazy. How did they get out of this? Was there a question? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, we started... I've got a microphone. I feel like I'm on a soapbox We now. started Sorry. way back at the beginning of our, of our tangent talking about, you know, sort of growing up and, and identity and I guess I my my curiosity um, was to dig a little more into you know the community that you grew up in in Liverpool versus when you moved to London and you began having your sort of chameleon mm. uh, multiple personalities in various different I places. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. They were. They really sure. were. Sure, but but to your point about being a performer, you you had your sort of chameleon stage where you experienced all of these things with all of these groups and you talked about college and that sort of bizarre world that mm. you dropped into, but that's where you found acting. I and did. I also found an identity because I, I, I didn't know, who, uh, you know, what was my label before that? Was, right. I, was I the kind of slightly vulgarian from North West London Jewish world? Was I, you know, guy from Liverpool? Uh, I was Jason Isaacs, the student actor or student director. I, like, mm. I That was the thing. I had a label. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. I had somewhere to go to. I, it, it might have been, maybe it would have been just as comfortable uh, a community if I joined the origami group or whatever. Mm. Just, I had some people. I had yeah. my people. Um, and the stuff that we talked about seemed so much more interesting than stuff that, that people were talking about when they were having drinks in each other's room or party. We were stuff, talking about the stuff of life. Now, we hadn't really lived any life ourselves yet, but still we were talking about those things. And uh, we also did all those things that student drama, you know, you think it's clever to be naked and swear a lot. And all the plays <laughs> are always about sex. But uh, but I loved that village, you know, that suddenly there's a new village every time. Yes. Uh, and uh, I went to the Edinburgh Festival a lot. I did Fringe Theatre a lot and did the National Student Theatre Company a lot. I, I really, I, mean, I think I probably dealt with or engaged with it in the same way I engaged with books when I was younger or candy when I was younger or drugs when I was older. Like it just, I went full tilt. I went, oh, this is the thing. Let's do this. And that's what it was like getting into the theater. Yeah. Just, just, I went, let's do, why would I do anything else? 
Mm. Like why any part of my day that isn't doing this is a wasted part of the day. Like when I used to smoke a lot, any time I inhaled and I wasn't inhaling smoke seemed like a wasted inhale. And, and that's what it felt like doing plays and putting plays on and directing plays and stuff. So that, that sort of, you know, you hear the term adrenaline junkie, but I think about some of that relentlessness almost as being a, like a pleasure junkie. Mm-hmm. In the way that you describe it, the, this like desire to really feel, to have it be experiential all the time. You found it in theater, but you say that you knew you had it. Perhaps you knew you had it upon reflection as a child with books, with skateboarding. How, yeah, how do you... I, didn't, I didn't have a sense that I liked extremes mm. when I, I just, you know, if I wanted to finish a book, I would make myself finish the book. If I was tired, falling asleep, I'd prick myself with pins or splash myself with water, I'd be under the cover with a flashlight because I'm going to finish this book tonight and I would finish the book. You know, I just, uh, I had a tendency to, I don't know what, to, to, to extreme, to extremity, mm. to not wanting to give in to, I don't know what, good sense, I think. Why? What does giving in to good sense feel like? Uh, giving up? No, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't really understand it. Uh, I've, mm. I recognize that I've had it in my life and that, you know, it's what has sustained me sometimes. It's helped me achieve things in other times. It's destroyed me at other times. Uh, it's just a, a, an instinct to push through and not to settle for mediocrity. Yes. Yeah. So then how, as that sort of drive is applied to theater, do you wind up graduating with a law degree? Uh, how does that happen? Well... I mean, I have a law degree. It's technically true. Uh, first of all, <laughs> none of those laws are still in place, I don't think. But I studied them, you know, pre-Thatcher. But uh, I think they gave me the law degree in the end because they didn't want a failure on their books. Uh, I, I did very well in the first and second year. By the end of the third year, I knew, I know at the beginning of the third year, I was going to go to drama school. Ah, uh, and so I didn't. School. Yeah, to theater school, you know. So I didn't go into the law faculty at all i did no lectures i did no essays i did no tutorials um and uh, then i took the exams uh, you know and i wrote down what i thought the laws ought to be not what they were and i drew pictures to illustrate something <laughs> and, uh, i even tried to cheat at one point because i just had there was a subject i just knew nothing about at all and i i shared a house with other student lawyers and i got them to try and come in my room and brief me the night before and the notion that you could be briefed in one night for what these very smart people had studied all years laughable then i tried to look at a little kind of cheat sheet um and i wrote down a list because in those days studying law was a lot about memory memorizing cases um so i thought well i wrote out 10 case names i wrote them on a piece of paper and i thought that would jog the memory of the thing i had half looked at at four o'clock that morning uh, that morning um and I went into the uh, exam and I knew nothing and I went to the toilet and I pulled this piece of paper out and I looked and I tried to remember four names uh, that I could come back and expand on. Um, and I went and sat back down in my seat and I couldn't remember what they were. <laughs> so I think they gave me a degree. They took my honours away. So it's an LLB with honours. And they took the honours away uh, because I'd done well in the previous two years and they thought in that third year, um, he's not going to be a lawyer. He's not going to shame us in court. And we don't want to have a failure in our books. Was there conversation about this with your brothers? Because they went very traditional. You've very got a, traditional, you, yeah. you have a lawyer, you have a doctor, you have an accountant, you know, in, in the, in yeah, the yeah. troop of the four of you. 
Did you admit to them what was going on at the time or no? No, no, I was, I mean, I did that. It's funny, my, I've got a daughter at university now and she never calls and I, and she doesn't really answer when I call her. And I get incredibly upset because we've been very close as parents all the time. And, and then I remember that I would call once every couple of weeks on a payphone for five minutes, you know. And I, I really, I, I walked away from my family. I walked away from the world of my family. It was a pretty dysfunctional family. Mm. You know, you don't become a drug addict or an actor, frankly, unless there's some cracks in the mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were not that kind to each other. There's some very destructive behavior going on. And so, no, I didn't share it with them. I, I did talk to my dad today. He was 89. He asked me what my daughter, who's studying English at Cambridge, is going to do. And I said, I have no idea, Dad. He said, well, but what does she plan to do for a job? Be an English teacher? And I went, I don't think so. Well, why is she studying English? And I said, Dad, because what happened is you were dirt poor. My dad left school at 15 and worked mm-hmm. with his hands. And I go, and you wanted your kids to do better. They needed to study something professional, have a real job. So we all studied these things that would not be, you know, uh, someone working with their hands like you were. And then I made some money. And so my kids don't think about having a job at all. They'll probably be <laughs> poor and work with them. And so their kids will once again be back on the cycle. But my kids just think life is about dreaming and, uh, and following, you know, your passions. Okay. And uh, who knows where they'll land. But yeah, they didn't mind. I guess for my parents, they had all the boxes ticked. And also... I wasn't really a kid that you stopped doing what he wanted to do. I just, uh, I was pretty single-minded. I did think, I don't know about you, well, you you were very successful, very young, um, and obviously made money. When I chose to be an actor in Britain, I chose to be poor, I thought. I mean, I chose a life of art Mm. that I imagined would have me in kind of one-bedroom studio apartments eating cold beans out of a tin, Mm -hmm. but being artistically fulfilled. Yeah. There was no part of me that thought I would ever make a living at all. But I just thought that's that, that that's okay. I'll be okay with that for a while. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, you know, I spent years hustling and on the audition circuit and um, working retail. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, they always say it takes years to become an overnight success. But I was in college, so I think it was right. less, surprising um god i lived in shitholes at school every every summer because i didn't want to go home my parents couldn't believe i didn't want to come back to the house for summer and i was like are you out of your minds you think i'm coming <laughs> home to a curfew like get right. out of here um <laughs> well, but, what do you want to act for so why like i wanted to act because i wanted not to be myself i wanted to explore other worlds i wanted to be be anything other than where what i was where i came from what, yeah, what were you looking for i for a person who I've learned other people view as um, very in the middle of things, mm. I genuinely feel emotionally like I'm in the corner most of the time. And I was such a voracious reader. And when I did my first play, it it's such a silly thing to realize, but it was like profound for me. I realized a play was just a book come to life. Mm-hmm. And and the big feelings, just another type of story. Yeah, but it but it was it was the worlds I would go into and feel seen and represented and see what I desired in my own life. It was that world was real while we right. were on stage. And did you like expressing your emotions in ways that you didn't do in your life, or is that not true? Uh for sure. I liked shouting and crying and screaming Me and being too. angry, fighting, not being scared, Me for too. instance, and all that stuff. Never, because when you have dialogue, 
uh, you know, unless you're playing a scene where your character is fearful of something, I'm never afraid mm -hmm. because I know, I know what's coming. I'm, I'm high on the unexpected experience inside of the container that I know mm -hmm. that's a, an ultimate rush, but there is a safety in this is the scene and it will begin and it will end and you will express and you will be free. You can find something, but still know it. Mm -hmm. And and it's a very strange duality that I think is so beautiful about what we do. You can have a completely unexpected experience on a road that is completely expected. But it was very affirming. Mm -hmm for me. And in my own life, there was a lot of expectation to be good. Always be good. Always be home on time. Never break curfew. Never sneak out. Always let someone else be the problem. So I never complained. Right. I never had an issue. No matter how terrible something was, I gritted my teeth and I bared it and I did it and I made sure everyone else was okay while I did. And Which you inherited because you, I'm not breaking confidence here, but you had some very unhappy work experiences where you oh, yeah. also didn't speak out and didn't, didn't yeah. feel empowered to do those things. Yeah, where we figured out inside spaces how to look out for each other, but we were never allowed to challenge authority. And then as I aged and got to understand more and did challenge authority, it got worse, not mm. better. And, and so I... It, it gave me an immense amount of like DNA level understanding of other people in their own versions of those kinds of situations because you learn to cope so that it doesn't get worse. Sure. And it's part of the reason that I behave the way I behave on our set. To make no, sure. it's remarkable. I, I, you know, I did a whole day of interviews for our show yesterday, and they were like, uh, "So tell me about Sophia Bush. What's <laughs> Sophia Bush like to work with?" And um, and it is remarkable to watch you walk the walk, and Katie, our showrunner, walk the walk. That you both want to create a work environment that is full of people who want to go to work and mm -hmm. feel like if they can, if they need to, they'll be heard if they speak out, and that they are being cared for and listened to, and. Uh, you know, those, that's the kind of corporate speak one expects to find absolutely everywhere. When would anyone ever not say those things? But to see you do it and put it in motion and ask about people and see, have Katie do it too. And, and Katie and Jenny, whose company makes the show, for them to say, um, which I found remarkable. So, you know, I've, I'm old. I've heard most sayings before. I've certainly heard most bullshit Hollywood sayings a million times. And then for them to say, I can't remember which one of Katie or Jenny said, when people come to me with something, my first instinct is to say yes, and then I want to work out why. Mm. And I've been around, only been around people who who want to say no and how dare you, and then mm -hmm. work out why. Um, mm. And that, and I, so I see you at work, uh, not that you're losing focus on the acting, but that you want work to be a place where uh, justice prevails and the people are treated right. And that yeah. uh, it's just, I, I, you know, I've been working a long, long time. And I've worked on some very lovely sets with some very lovely people. Um, but I've never been around a place where that is a priority and mm. put into action like it is around you. It's remarkable. That makes me so happy. Well, this was a lot of fun. Do not forget that this is just part one. Mm -hmm.